You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome to On Watch, the Judicial Watch podcast, where we take a deep dive on topics that are underreported by the mainstream news media and demand a further look and greater background or context to really understand what's going on. We also take time to review Judicial Watch investigations and give you the backstory of how we go after corrupt government officials and practices, shedding light on things politicians would rather you forget. Judicial Watch's mission is to promote transparency, integrity, and accountability in government politics and the law. If that appeals to you, then you are in the right place. So follow and rate this podcast on Watch, whether you found us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other platforms out there. Be sure to subscribe to us. Hit the little bell so you get a notification of when a new podcast comes out. And be sure to leave us a rating that helps us out very much. Our podcast has been growing by leaps and bounds. We're grateful to you. Be sure to tell a friend, a family member, a coworker about what we're doing here on this podcast and the work of Judicial Watch. We really appreciate it. This week, I am joined by Derek Maltz, former special agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administrations, so the DEA's Special Operations Division, for almost 10 years. Folks, this guy is a legitimate American hero who for 28 years placed his life on the line for this country and fought the good fight to keep America from the scourge of drugs. Derek Maltz was also chief of the New York Drug Enforcement Task Force, which was the oldest and largest drug task force operating in the United States. We're gonna discuss a number of topics, including the ongoing fentanyl crisis. That's an attack on the United States that is responsible for the deaths of historic numbers of young Americans. And it's really fed by Mexican terror cartels, not drug cartels, terror cartels that make billions of dollars a year in partnership with Chinese transnational criminal syndicates. Let's be clear, this is a foreign attack. It's a joint operation by the Chinese and the Mexicans. And uh, guess who's paying the price? Uh, Americans between the ages of 18 and 45, pay attention. The number one cause of death among American adults 18 to 45 is fentanyl overdose. There's no one more qualified to discuss this crisis with us. Derek Maltz, welcome to On Watch. Chris, thank you very much. I really appreciate being here and to talk about this topic, which is a national security emergency for the country. And unfortunately, we're not hearing it on mainstream media. So it's a perfect opportunity to help educate all these great American patriots that are listening. It's really it's flabbergasting. The number one cause of death in Americans 18 to 45 is fentanyl overdoses. How the hell did that happen? How did, why isn't it car wrecks? Why, I mean, how could it be the single greatest cause of death? Well, because the cartels, as you know very well, are in the business to make billions of dollars. And unfortunately, back in the 90s, in the 2000s, the corporate cartels, they dumped 100 billion opioids into our country. And so many people got addicted to these opioids And now the Mexican cartels are taking total advantage of the addicted population, and they're selling this very powerful, deadly synthetic opioid. They no longer have to have a plant involved. It's just fentanyl is very addictive. It's very cheap. So it fits right into the business model of the Mexican cartels. But Chris, as you alluded, what's behind the scenes is really scary to me, and I'm learning every day something new. The Communist Party of China these transnational criminal organizations in China are dumping the poison into our country using the cartels as a proxy now. So their fingerprints aren't on it. And our kids are dying at record levels. The CDC numbers in the uh, 12 month period and in June of 2021 revealed 101,263 dead Americans. And the numbers are much higher. And we see one statistic after another, Chris, to support this weapon of mass destruction, chemical weapon attack, whatever you want to call it, 
on our country. But unfortunately, nobody in the national media is really addressing this with the politicians and the Washington swamp rats, okay? Because that's how I see it. Because anyone that thinks uh, this can't happen to their own kid, just go talk to the parents, which I do every day, by the way. I know that you do, Derek. And I know a couple of years back, you and I cooperated with our friend Sarah Carter in doing a documentary called Not in Vain. And that documentary really starts out with a, a kid, beautiful, I think she's like a 19, 20 year old girl in Ohio and uh, her addiction and then overdose death and kind of that's that's the kickoff point of the documentary. But we try to walk it up from the border right into a community in Ohio, trying to show how this is not, you know, some it's not one of the one of these drug cases where people say, oh, well, that's that's those people. Or they try to identify out. They try to point the finger. They say, oh, that's a minority population in urban centers or, you know, that's not really this doesn't happen in our neighborhood or this isn't our community because that's baloney. This is happens in every community across the country. And as you pointed out, the numbers are staggering. But when you and I helped out, Sarah, trying to put that documentary together, one of the things I try to express to people is that the death rate is basically the equivalent to a 737 filled with young people crashing into a mountain every single day. So you'd have picture one plane a day hitting the side of a mountain. If that were the case, the FAA and all the major airlines would shut down air traffic. There'd be big investigations. There'd be finger pointing. There'd be accountability. They want to know how the hell did this happen? How can we have a plane crash every single day? But that's what the death count is on fentanyl. Right, Chris. And I got to say, I, I appreciate your work and, and going back in time. We didn't know each other, even though we're from Long Island together. Uh, I, I understand how you feel about this and what you've been talking about over the years on the terrorist designation, which we'll talk about later on. But my latest analogy is as we're coming up to the Super Bowl here in California, SoFi Stadium will be about 70,000 strong. If you take another half a stadium, put it next to the SoFi Stadium. Now you have the annual death rate from this poison that's coming in from the cartels. And then, like I, I talked about this week, just to put it in perspective, if, if, when you're putting sweetener in your coffee tomorrow morning, think about that one gram package could kill 500 people if it was fentanyl. So obviously we have a national security issue. Chris, one of the things I wanted to bring up to you, I wanted to get your feelings too, is that even President Obama in the White House talking points in December, I'm sorry, President Biden in, in his talking points, he said that drug crisis is an unusual and extraordinary threat to national security of America. And if that's the case, then how do you justify having a wide open border when all the cartel operatives are getting over the border every day and setting up operations in our streets, killing our kids? And then how do you not take more aggressive action against the cartels or demand the Mexican government to step up? Because we have we do have a terrorist attack on our country. And the way I like to say, it, Chris, because people sometimes think it's too extreme. Right. Here's the bottom line. Tell me another terrorist organization in the history of the country that has killed more Americans than the Mexican cartels working with the Chinese transnational criminals. I don't know of one. So we have a very serious situation. And by the way, it's not overdose deaths anymore. I know that's what everyone thinks they are. It's, it's fentanyl murders and fentanyl poisoning. Because most of these kids, or probably the vast majority of these people, when they go and buy a fake pill, when they go buy you know some cocaine or meth, they don't expect to die. They expect to have a good time or relax or whatever their goal with, you know, is for taking the drugs. They, they, you know, like kids are supposed to learn from mistakes, not die instantly from mistakes. Right. That's really a key point, because this is not a, you know, a deliberate overdose. Or you got guys who are junkies who are looking for a hot load of drugs to shoot. There's a perverse attraction to that. These are people that are, quote unquote, innocently. And I mean that in the sense of naively or stupidly thinking they're taking one particular drug or thinking that they're taking something that they're used to. But in fact, they're they're messing around with it. They're getting their hands on drugs 
that have been otherwise manipulated or altered. And so the pill, they think the pill they took 10 times before, they just got wasted and they had fun and that was it. Now the pill is not what they think it was the last nine or 10 times. And this is the pill that's got fentanyl in it and they're bang, they're dead. It's not even an open question. It's not like they're, they're the regular, I'm using air quotes, but the regular recreational use of drugs. This is something else completely. Right. So let's talk about a couple of things. You know, there's kids as young as 12 years old going on social media, ordering one pill and dying. And then the parents are finding them in their bedroom. This happened all around the country. I make photo collages of all these dead kids. I talk to the parents. I know the stories. I don't have to read them in the news or or hear it on the news stories. But it's really, really tragic. And many of these kids, unfortunately, they see mom or dad taking Xanax for anxiety they're really stressed out because of the COVID world that we live in and all the problems, all the crime and the violence in our cities, all these police officers getting shot. So they want to relax. They want to go to school. They want to relax. They want to study and focus on their exams. So they take a pill that they think they're buying uh, online that's legitimate, just like they took in mom's uh, pill bottle. But unfortunately, this is the poison coming from the Mexican cartel labs. On October 28th, Chris, I'm sure you've seen it. But the Sinaloa cartel had one of their labs hit by the Mexican army. And in the lab, they seized hundreds of pounds of fentanyl. But the AP reports came out saying that that particular lab could produce 70 million fake counterfeit pills every month. The DEA has statistics and the administrator of DEA has put it out that this year alone, they've seized more than 20 million fake pills from their cases. Now, one thing I want to note that everybody needs to be aware of. And this isn't Derek Maltz speculating. I didn't read this in the news. I got this from professionals in the DEA that I talk to every day. And it's also been part of news releases. The DEA lab did an analysis of all these fake pills. And they have determined 40% of the pills that they analyzed have a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. That means if these pills had pure fentanyl in them, it's hard to say exactly. The DEA with their state and local counterparts have saved millions of people. And so for anyone that doesn't think law enforcement's making a difference, can you imagine how many dead people would be in America if they didn't make these seizures? Look at the Border Patrol and CBP, right? Big, big CBP last year seized 11,201 pounds of fentanyl at our border. That's a 390% increase from 2018. Do the math that one kilogram of fentanyl could potentially kill 500,000 people if it was pure fentanyl. This, like the administrator of DEA said, national news, there's been enough pills and enough fentanyl seized by DEA alone to kill everyone in America. So we're not talking about a simple little drug crisis, an opioid addiction crisis. We're talking about a chemical attack on our country Many of these chemicals are coming from China. The precursor chemicals are going to the lab operators in Mexico, and they're making this stuff, and they're making billions of dollars, commingling that money with their migrant smuggling money, which is off the charts, depending on who you talk to, how many billions they're making from the migrant smuggling. And now business is booming. But there's a new dynamic, Chris, that nobody talks about. The Chinese nationals in our country that are here on visas for school, they're getting orders from Mexico City from the Chinese uh, operations people that are sitting with the cartels to pick up millions of dollars in cash and deliver the money to Chinese nationals in our country. And they're laundering the money for the cartels. They're the number one money laundering service for the cartels right now. So the two key things in making this poisonous substance that is killing at record levels are the chemicals. And to keep the business going, you need the money, right? So China is providing those two really important items. And we don't even hear about this really in the news. Hit the, hit the brakes. Certainly not hit, at the White House. Hit the brakes on that for a second, because I, I just want you to, to break that down, maybe even just repeat it. So, so you People, I think, have this idea, okay, the bad guys provide drugs and sell it. True. Got it. Okay. People take it. They either get screwed up or they die. But I think it's interesting is the cash flow part of it that you've come up with, which is 
So there's Chinese nationals who are basically under orders from the Chinese communist government in, in Beijing, because the only reason they got to this country is because they're on the hook to the government back home. So if they don't cooperate, they don't play ball, you know, uh, their parents go off to a labor camp. I mean, that's the hook they have on them. They don't do anything without getting permission from the central government in Beijing. So these Chinese nationals are in the United States. They're following orders. They're being told to, to shuttle the drugs. They're, they're, they're acting to, as carriers to bring the drugs, excuse me, to, the bring money. The cash, to bring the cash back to their cartel guys. Yeah, so, so let me just walk through it so it's clearer, right? So I'll give you a quick evolution briefing. So when I was at the Special Operations Division, we had 30 agencies there, three countries, NYPD. I had a fortunate uh, position. I was very fortunate to be in a position to see global operations as they're developing. So right around 2008, okay, we started seeing massive synthetic chemicals coming into this country from China, from Wuhan-style labs. We sent informants down into China. We met with the lab people. What that was at the time, Chris, was what we call synthetic cannabinoids, synthetic cathinones, K2 spice bath salts, okay? So they began to bomb America with synthetic drugs around that time from these labs. Well, what happened was we started seeing tremendous increases in emergency room admissions, poison control centers, because no one knew what this stuff was. They thought it was like a, they were getting like a synthetic marijuana high and kids were using it, homeless were using it, people were dropping all over the streets. So we started launching investigations, started realizing that the chemicals were made in China. A few years later, we did some really massive law enforcement operations, took some of these guys down, put some heat on China, the government. Then all of a sudden around 2012, we started seeing deaths in America from fentanyl. As the head of SOD, I had no idea really that fentanyl was being pushed out of China into the streets of America in being mixed in different products. Well, what we learned is that the same labs in China started making the pure fentanyl and selling it on the dark web or on the internet and started sending it to America. So then we started seeing, as, as you go through the evolution after 2012, just to let you know, Chris, how bad it was, we briefed Attorney General Eric Holder in 2014 on our new operation at the time called Deadly Merchant. Operation Deadly Merchant was, was addressing the chemical threat with fentanyl with China, the Mexican cartels in 2014. And this was like the beginning of the surge. But what happened was, as they started like operating with the cartels and then sending the pure fentanyl directly to the Mexican cartels, not just in the mail to America, then the cartels started realizing how easy it was to actually get involved with this stuff and build their customer de uh, demand. And so then the perfect storm hit when they started using the existing relations that they had in China on the methamphetamine precursor chemicals, and they started sending all the required chemicals to make fentanyl in labs in Mexico. And that was the game changer in my view, because then the cartels realized they could do it on their own. It's not that hard. It's very addictive. It's going to increase business. Um, and they had a steady they had a steady flow of chemicals because at the ports in Mexico, with all the corruption in Mexico, they could get the chemicals in a lot easier than some type of illicit drug because no one cares about chemicals, right? Right. So this is when business started to boom. And this is when we started seeing all of this. So then the Mexicans, you know, business was moving so fast. The Chinese conveniently stepped in, went to Mexico City, cut deals with the uh, cartels to start doing the money laundering services. And they were really smart because at first they were undercutting all the traditional money launderers. They weren't charging any percentage for picking up the money. Historically, if you had a Spanish money launderer that was picking up your money and laundering it, you may pay 5%, 8% commission. The Chinese were charging zero commission, 1% to establish themselves. So because the cartels are so greedy, they were like, this is great. We're going to work with the Chinese on the money laundering. So what we started seeing, <clears throat> excuse me, is we started seeing the Chinese nationals, these young kids, who many times, maybe they didn't even know what they were doing, but they were told to go to, let's say, Las Vegas with 500000 that they just picked up in Chicago. 
They turned the 500,000 over to the Chinese business guy, the high roller in one of the casinos, the U.S. citizen. He would take that money, but then he would actually take his, his iPhone or his Android and he would move 500,000 instantly from his bank account in China to his buddy's bank account in China. Then they would put together a $500,000 order of consumer goods and ship it immediately to Mexico. They sell the goods in Mexico for two, three million in equivalent money down there in the pesos. They pay the drug traffickers back instantly and they all make money. But the worst part, Chris, is it limits the U.S. law enforcement's ability to penetrate because the money's being transferred via banking apps in China and WeChat, which is all encrypted. So U.S. law enforcement really has their work cut out for them, although they've made some progress, they've done a good job. This is just continuing to build up momentum. And why is that? Because why are the cartels in business? To make money. You know, they, if they put a million or $2 million in a tractor trailer and try to send it down to Mexico, the state troopers, the, the Mexican authorities, U.S. law enforcement, a lot of times are seizing the money. When they do it in the way I just described, they're making it, they're making a killing, literally. Yep. Yep. And that, so that, this is, is, that, that is the perfect example. And that lays game changer. It out. That lays it out for people in a way that's very, very clear. And that is these purchases, these phony purchases or these sort of substitution purchases that allow for the transaction to occur and essentially clean the money. And then they sell product on top of what they already bought it with. And they make even more money on the on this, quote, unquote, the quote, unquote, legit side of the sale. Right. Trade based money laundering scheme. It's been around forever, but this one's brand new with the Chinese and how innovative they are in getting the money back to the cartels very quickly. There's a lot of other different schemes, Chris, but I just wanted to lay that one out because it's never talked about in the news because no one wants to talk about the Chinese as a criminal network or a terrorist network to our country because then it would create some bad publicity for the White House. So this is what the public needs to know. And by the way, Chris, you know this because you work these cases, but the public may not realize my eyes were opened up when we saw the $207 million that was seized in Mexico City in 2007 from the Chinese chemical broker that was living it also in Las Vegas. It was all $100 bills. We've never seen in the history of the country a cash seizure. And that's 14, 15 years ago, Chris. Right. So you can imagine how it's expanded. And right. all he was doing, by the way, that guy was a chemical broker bringing Mexican cartels all the precursor chemicals to make methamphetamine. It's outrageous. I mean, it's just, it is the amount of money involved. I mean, if people even had an inkling, their heads would explode because it's just an outrageously huge amount of money and they do it so smoothly and so smart. Uh, you know, it's just, I know that law enforcement does everything they possibly can to try to track this stuff down, but they make it very, very difficult. Like you said, between encrypted apps Chinese banking accounts, it's... Uh... And also, Chris, one other thing really important. Sure. Let's be honest. The U.S. law enforcement doesn't have unlimited Chinese-speaking offices and agents, right? Right, right. So right. you have to rely on Chinese nationals or others that understand the culture, that can speak the language, that do undercover work, penetrate them. That's not as simple as people may think. In the, With the Mexican cartels, U.S. law enforcement has unlimited amounts of informants and Spanish speakers that could penetrate them. So that's another really creative strategic decision that the cartels made because they study what we've done to them over the years and they want to stay in business. They don't want to go to jail and they want to make billions. So this is a perfect plan. But for the Chinese, it's a perfect plan because they could destabilize the American country, their biggest adversary, the economic powerhouse, the military powerhouse, they're not going to drop bombs in America right now, at least I hope. They're not going to send troops into our country. But if they could kill our future generation at levels that we've never seen in the history of the country, that's a great strategic plan from Chinese Communist Party's standpoint, right? You're exactly right. Yeah. And, and the others, I, I don't want to go into it and you know why, but there's some really sinister ways that the opposition can also vet people or test who they think are recruited sources. And uh, that's a, a wicked business unto itself. We're not going to go there on that. But that's 
the way in which the opposition, when they think that they're being doubled or played with, uh, or they suspect that somebody's a rat from their perspective, it's a it's very, very scary, very bad business with the things they can do to apply pressure to people to test them. And uh, it's, that, that's another nightmare story for people. There's people doing undercover work that are very brave and uh, they put themselves at great personal risk to try to help U.S. law enforcement. The other thing, uh, I, want, the other thing yeah. I wanted to bring up with you is our, people listening to you, I know they're fascinated with, with the information you're providing because they're not hearing it anyplace else. But uh, so give me a little bit of back. How did a nice kid like you from Long Island, how did you end up with the DEA? Well, you know, my father was a dedicated DEA executive and agent over the years, 30 years, and he kind of pushed me into this career path. I went to school for accounting, had no desire, no intent to go into law enforcement, but he pushed me in this direction. And thank God he did, because I never had a bad day in 28 years. I, I mean that. Uh, I love the, the career. I love the profession. Plus, my brother was in the U.S. military and the Air Force. He died in Afghanistan in the war in a helicopter crash. So we have a lot of passion in the family for national security and public safety. So, you know, obviously it's very important to me. And now that I'm retired, I work super close with the families and help them get awareness. I put them on, you know, with the producers on national news shows. I, I testify to Congress. I make the collages. I do a lot of podcasts and other things to kind of keep the word going. Because listen, Chris, it's so devastating. It's hard to even imagine for the average person listening because people just don't understand like how many people are impacted every day. It's like we estimate roughly 277 a day are dying. But when you listen to the stories, there's something about it. Like when I get a message in the, in the email from a, from a mother with a picture of her son, who's like 17 years old and basically says, Derek, you know, we saw you on Fox News. Thank you for spreading the awareness about this important issue. And even though you can't bring back my son, maybe this will help bring this attention to the American people. It's way too late for my son, but hopefully it will save someone else's son or daughter. And you see this beautiful young kid looking at you. It's like so, so motivating for me to keep the pressure on because like Ronald Reagan said, you can't get him to see the light, make him feel the heat. So that's one of my passions. I want to make sure that the DHS secretary, the attorney general, the president, the vice president, the congressmen and women, that they feel some heat because they have a responsibility to these families. Well, you know, it, it, it cannot possibly escape uh, Biden, uh, Mayorkas. I think a lot of things uh, escape Harris. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, she knows what she's doing. And who knows Biden? I think he's got some other problems. But certainly somebody like Mayorkas, they know exactly what they're doing. I mean, this is what makes me crazy. These yeah. people, these people know exactly what they're doing. They are encouraging and subsidizing criminal activity, the human smuggling and trafficking, the drugs. They know, they understand what the consequences are for the policies they've taken. And I mean, so here, here's the choice, right? They're either negligent or they're complicit. You get to pick which one do you want to be? Because there's, there's no other explanation for what they're doing. And, you know, have you gotten any kind of feedback, any kind of response from anybody currently in, I'm not saying the policy guys, the, the White House people, but have you gotten any kind of feedback from people on the inside right now with this, this radical 180 degree shift from the trumpet position to the Biden position, does anybody really appreciate how incredibly dangerous this is? Or is it all just, you know, fun and games, happy talk for them? Chris, unfortunately, like in my experience, many of these politicians and these agency leaders are way more consumed with their with themselves and their egos and their personal bank accounts than the mission or the American public. That's my firsthand experience that I could testify you know, over the years, what I've seen in these government agencies and leadership positions. That being said, I do talk to law enforcement every single day at every level, from the worker bees on the streets to the leaders of the agencies. And I understand what's going on. And I also talk to retired experts like Tom Holman and Rodney Scott 
and Mark Morgan and people that were involved during the Trump administration, involved during the Obama administration, involved during the current administration. And they say the same thing that you're saying. This is deliberate. This is this complicity, complicit. Oh, I can't even speak. They're complicit in what's going on because they understand the border and they understand the cartels. They understand these relationships. And this didn't start overnight. But unfortunately, the policies that they have in place now is actually enhancing the bad guy's ability to do what they're doing. And from my standpoint, it's destroying the country. And the morale, Chris, by the way, what I worry about most is I've seen tremendous leaders in the government bail out, retire, get other jobs, get away from it. They can't take it. They don't like the, the lack of support, the lack of leadership, the lack of commitment. And then we see a lot of inexperienced people rising up in the ranks that don't want to speak out, that don't want to go into the media, that are afraid of their chain of command. But we also have the people on the front lines that are working over the top hours. They're getting shot at. You see the levels of police violence in the country. It's off the charts. So they're thinking about their families and they're saying, is it really worth it? So we have a whole other problem with the law enforcement culture in America. Now, the vast majority of law enforcement, they're patriots. They care about the country. But there's only so long. It's only so long that you can put up with this stuff and deal with this madness before you start looking out for your own family, your own kids. And so you make one mistake in law enforcement today, they'll fire you. You'll have social media. You'll or have worse, cameras yeah, at worse, your house. Worse than fire you. They'll, they'll destroy your life and your family. Yes, they'll, exactly. They'll so you understand this, Chris. But I mean, the thing is, is that it's getting worse in my view from my, if I had a, like a, uh, a temperature gauge on the law enforcement folks that I speak to, the heat is going way up and the madness because they are trying to do the right thing, but their hands are tied as well. This is a situation where, uh, you know, it, it's the, the perfect storm in the, in the worst sense of it, where you've got uh, federal political uh, directives that are anti-law enforcement, actually anti anti-American. They're, they're putting American communities and families at risk. That's, that's what's downstream from their decisions. And then you've got various groups on the left who are anti-police, defund the police, attack the police. And it's not just police at the local level. It's obviously it's municipal, it's state, it's federal. Uh, you have people like Mayorkas running around ordering federal law enforcement officers not to do their jobs. There's been some pretty interesting video that's come out where Mayorkas and other senior leaders, Border Patrol, or have, have been having meetings with rank and file, and the rank and file agents are yelling at them, basically telling them that they're traitors, and why can't, why won't you let us do our job? Um, and the, the response, I guess it was the head of the Border Patrol, uh, the uniform head, head not, not, the, not the politician, he tells the agents, well, don't get involved and don't, don't worry about policies. And they're like, what do you mean don't worry about policies? Your policies are what I have to go out and do every day. What do you mean don't worry about policies? It's crazy. Yeah, it anyway, is. So, so it's just, it's a, you know, and then you have officers. Some officers are going to, they're going to see which way the wind is blowing. And uh, they're not getting out of the, the, uh, the squad car. They're not getting out of the cruiser. They're going to keep driving around the block because, Unless there's something absolutely horrific that goes on in front of them that they can't ignore it, you're not going to see them engage. And when that happens, that's when society starts to come apart at the seams. Well, you, Chris, don't, you don't have active, active policing anymore. That's, that's already happening. I, I have cops that call me that are on the streets of America that have said that exact thing. They will not take action. They're not pulling over speeders. They're not pulling over people. They're not interacting with the, the community unless it's 100% a necessity Life and death is on the line, but it's really sad because they just don't want to take that chance. It's going to destroy their lives if they make a mistake or if someone files a complaint, they get no support. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. And if we can, I, look, this is one of these things where this may be one of these little societal bubbles where we have this sort of, you know, temper tantrum phase 
But we got to snap out of it because uh, unless there's fundamental law enforcement, and I'm talking about community policing stuff all the way up to big federal, you know, complex investigations, the kind of stuff you were doing at every level, there's got to be, it's a two-way street, right? The police have got to have the trust and faith and confidence of the people and then flip it around the other way. The people have to realize that, you know, 99% of the cops out there are trying to do the right thing. Are there dirt balls? You betcha. I can name off a bunch of dirt balls that I've met, but, but for the most part, they're all really trying to do the right thing, particularly in the local county level kind of, uh, it's, it, it's a, it's a very, very tough nut to crack. So listen, we got this horrific situation. So give me, give me some of your idea. If, if you could be king for the day, we give you a magic wand. What are some things that you think need to be addressed right away? Things you would fix. So a couple of things that could be done with very limited effort that has been neglected for many years is a big public awareness campaign from the White House or the drug czar's office where they market the information to the younger communities of America, the kids that are in middle school, in, in high school, okay, uh, because those are the kids that are just vulnerable right now from the death, immediate death. The cartels are marketing to the children to maximize their profits. Why isn't our government educating the children about this crisis? So we have the cartels um, right now, all right? That's the enemy of our children. So we need a response. So the first thing that can be done is recruiting professional athletes, celebrities, and get an all-out PSA, uh, you know, during primetime TV, during sporting events, and start educating them, going to the schools like we've never done before, virtual events, mandatory. So that's the easy part, Chris, okay? Because that can be done with anybody that has a heart, that's what should be done. Right now, they won't even use the word fentanyl really on the TV, okay, some of these people. It's disgusting. Just like when Tylenol was poisoning Americans in 1992. We had seven dead people, at least, I think, I can't remember. We had like every day, national news, newspapers, everyone knew, no, don't take Tylenol, it's deadly, right? That was seven people, right? We had seven people just like yesterday or two days ago, I read in the news at one time in, in Pennsylvania, I think it was. Anyway, so that's number one. Number two, you have to get these people, millions of people that are addicted to opioids right now, when the corporate cartels dumped all this, these opioids into America for an eight-year period, 100 billion pills, you got to get them legitimate help, whatever it takes. We, we send billions of dollars all over the world to these other countries and all this stuff. Take care of our own. Get these people legitimate help. So the education, the treatment has to be done. The rehabilitation of the people that are making away, the mental illness and the services that these people need. Got to deal with the homeless population as well. But those kind of things are not in my area of expertise. But I have enough common sense to know you have to do it. But you can't just throw money at it. You have to hold government people accountable for results. So if you're putting billions of dollars towards this new program, it's not just a talking point in a White House you know, photo op. You have to then put a director in charge of the money and hold them responsible for weekly, monthly quarterly, annual, you know, reductions in the debt. And if it's not working, they need to be fired and you go on to other plans. The second thing that I wanted to say is law enforcement can't do this alone. What we've been doing over the years isn't good enough. Although I respect and I love law enforcement, I, I talk to them every day, I support them every day. We need more. We need more help from other experts in the government. I'm very familiar with Department of Defense capabilities. I'm very familiar with the intelligence uh, community's capabilities. When are we going to have a true uh, effort where we have all tools of national power to address this threat? Now, Amen. If, Amen. if the bureaucrats, it's critical. It's critical. Let, let me finish this because I want to just get this out. If the bureaucrats do not want to call the cartels terrorists, I'm fine with that. Call them the Mexican cartels, call them whatever you want but put the tools that we have and the authorities that we have against their production sites, their money flows, and the chemicals coming from China. We got to go after that flow of chemicals, got to go after the money and destroy, not hurt, destroy in any way possible, 
those production labs and those sites in Mexico with or without the Mexican uh, authorities. And I say that because it has to be Americans first. And if they don't want to get on the train, the train has to move full speed ahead. So you have to have that. But Chris, you know, it's disgusting. And I lived this in 2011. Obama first had a transnational crime strategy, and it was very well done by all their interagencies. If you read the strategy paper from 2011, it makes sense even today. But what was always missing is the operational implementation plan and the accountability. So they want the talking points and the photo ops, but they don't want to do the work to get it done. And so now Joe Biden recently announced he's forming a transnational crime council. Basically, what they did was dust off the old policy, put it on you know, the internet. It looks good, smells good, feels good, but there's no teeth behind it because the agencies are not focusing on the Mexican cartels and the Chinese in, in a unified manner. And that's kind of what's missing. Task force approaches do work. Forget about who's getting credit and worry more about the kids dying and the public than anybody's own personal, you know, agendas. You are 100% correct. And I can tell you that, uh, I mean, you can, you can play it out in your head. We have sufficient intelligence to know exactly where every single one of these labs are. We know where all the kingpins are on the ground. Every time they pick up a cell phone, every time they log onto a computer, every time they move money, we know. Or if we don't know every time, we certainly have very good indications. And, uh, you know, people will say that this is too severe, or it's too whatever. But uh, you put uh, you put some uh, drones up overhead with Hellfire missiles and you start eliminating these locations point after point after point, you're going to get their attention. Now, people get very afraid of that because I say, oh, my goodness, they might do something bad back to us. It's like, well, they're already killing 277 of us a day. I mean, what, what exactly. At what point did we say enough? Chris, uh, one, one of the fathers, the I'm sorry, one of the fathers just gave me a really good analogy. Matt Capilouto from California lost his beautiful daughter, Alex, 20 years old, senior year, Arizona State University, Christmas break, three days before Christmas, took one pill from social media. What he said to me yesterday, we we're on the Dr. Phil show, and he said, we invaded Iraq because we thought chemical weapons were in Iraq and President Bush wanted to protect not only people in America, but people in the world from this chemical weapon, right? Well, maybe you think it's a different analogy, but we have chemical weapons in thousands and thousands of pounds in Mexico and we're sitting here, nobody's doing anything about it. Now, I'm not saying we put our army on the ground in Mexico and invade the country. That's not what I'm saying. But there's more Americans dying from this poisonous fentanyl than in any terrorist act in the history of the country. So what are we doing? We got to get serious. You are 100% correct, and nobody says it better. Derek, there's a, I, I want to give listeners just a, sort of a feel or a taste for and not just obviously your knowledge, your experience, your, your sort of advocacy on this issue, but I think you know, you've got a very interesting investigative background during your time with DEA. And there's instances where stuff that you've worked on cases, you think, well, it's, it's drug stuff, right? But no, the stuff that you were working on, it had tentacles that reached far and wide, stuff that got into terrorism, a lot of interesting angles. So I'm going to ask you, uh, give, give our listeners just a little peek at one of your more interesting cases that, uh, that went, that I think people would be surprised at, at how the case unfolded and where it went. So a couple of quick things. Um, I was lucky. I came to the Special Operations Division in 2005. A lot of the foundation was already built by some visionary leaders. They, they, they established a, what we call a, counter narco-terrorism center, and they also established a bilateral international investigations team where we can send agents around the world to develop evidence on the biggest and baddest criminals out there in the world. So real quickly, early on in 2005, after the war, the DEA was trying to do everything they can to help this global war on terrorism. So there was a guy, Manza Kassar, who was a 
million, multi-million dollar arms trafficker who was providing weapons to terrorist organizations responsible for the death of Leon Klinghoffer, uh, 1985 terrorist act on the Achille Laurel where they shot the guy in the head, dumped him in the ocean in the wheelchair, the Jewish guy. So we wound up doing a case against Monza Kassar, undercover, sting operation, long story short, we arrested him, brought him back to America. He went to trial, he was convicted. But then the White House contacted us and said, you did a good job on that guy. Can you help us on Victor Booth, the billionaire arms trafficker in Russia? We went out six months after we started the operation. We put him in handcuffs in Thailand. He was charged with four terrorism counts, conspiracy to kill Americans, surface to air missiles, et cetera. And he was actually a legitimate billionaire arms trafficker. We brought him back to America, face justice. He's in jail. The reason I tell you that because it became an eye-opener to people in the interagency, like how could DEA go ahead and do this? That's because DEA has a very large um, law enforcement presence overseas and works with the counterparts. But really the most impressive thing that the DEA and what I got to work on with my guys is this Project Cassandra thing where we started looking at Hezbollah's role with the Mexican cartels doing extensive money laundering and cocaine distribution around the world, it's the subject of documentaries, national news stories, and films, and soon some movies, I'm sure. Long story short, they were actually involved with a multi-billion dollar cocaine money laundering operation to support Hezbollah, who's obviously the proxy for Iran. And they were doing a used car scheme where they were getting money here in America from the sale of ton quantities of cocaine in, in Africa and other parts of the world. The used car businesses all over our country were getting millions of dollars from the organization in Lebanon to buy used cars and to ship them to Africa where they're sold for a profit. The shipping companies were owned by Hezbollah operatives. And what they were doing was once they were selling the cars, it was creating an accelerated trade-based money laundering scheme to support Hezbollah. The main guy that we indicted was indicted for moving the proceeds of 85,000 kilograms of Mexican cartel cocaine. And, he, and the scheme that we identified with the used cars was doing $200 million a month through the scheme and the banks. And we could talk all day about that, Chris, but that opened my eye to eyes how intricately involved the Hezbollah, one of the worst terrorist organizations in the world, was working right hand in hand with the cartels. Now we've known forever, it's not new that terrorists increasingly are turning to crime and criminal networks for their funding because they can't sustain operations without the cash and drug trafficking, money laundering, you know, human smuggling, counterfeit goods, and all this other stuff that they do all help support radical terrorists around the world. So what we talk about, Chris, today, and what we talked about all day, it's not a drug crisis problem. It's a national security problem because they're all working together. They're integrated and they use each other's expertise and capabilities. And it's quite frightening, to be honest. Uh, I mean, it's just getting worse. And uh, I wish I had better news on that front, but we can turn it around if we get people to focus in on what the threats are. And right now the threats are really clear, at least on the drug side, and that is China, the Chinese transnational criminals, the uh, cartels in Mexico, uh, that's got to be the focus. And if that's not going to be the focus, this is just going to continue. Derek Maltz, nobody tells it like you do. You lay it out, you make it crystal clear, very compelling. Uh, listen, uh, all of you uh, listening to this podcast, you just got some of the best uh, information told in a very straight up manner. Uh, this is not some analyst sitting behind a keyboard in a, in a cubicle somewhere. This is a guy with 28 years of experience. He personally put his life on the line. He's got tremendous background, tremendous experience. Um, you've heard just a, a couple of, of other sort of related investigative stories of things that he's worked on. Uh, a former chief or the uh, special agent in charge of the DEA Special Operations Division for almost 10 years. He knows about these Mexican terror cartels. He knows about these Chinese 
transnational criminal syndicates and what they're doing to kill Americans. Um, I, Derek, I thank you for your time. I thank you for a really compelling, incredibly important story. And uh, it's, uh, it's got to be, you know, I'm going to close with that, that, that statistic that to me, it frames up the entire thing we've been talking about for the last 50 minutes or so. And that is that the number one cause of death among American adults, 18 to 45, is fentanyl. It's killing them. And we know where it's coming from. And we know how it's being gotten into this country. And uh, it is incumbent upon our leaders at all levels to take action. And I just wish that they would listen to Derek and take his advice. Uh, Derek Maltz, thank you, my friend, for being with us here on Watch. Chris, thank you very much. But one last comment, only because of your background with Arizona, just to put things in really clear perspective for everyone. In 2015, the DEA in Phoenix, Arizona, seized zero fake Mexican oxy pills coming from Mexico, zero. This year, over 10 million. Just one DEA office working with the state and local police in Arizona. So everybody listening should only imagine how many of these pills are all over America. It's a deadly, deadly threat. And uh, if you like what you've heard, even if it's scary, even if it's disturbing, if it, uh, if it gets <laughs> you frustrated and angry, good. I'm, I'm glad, frankly, uh, because you need to have this information. You're not going to hear it at a lot of places. You're not going to hear it on mainstream news media for the most part. You got to go to podcasts and alternative sources of information, and you got to get it not from somebody who read a book about it, but you need a guy, you need to get it directly firsthand from somebody like uh, Derek Maltz, who's uniquely qualified to talk about it. If you love what you heard, be sure to follow this podcast on watch, uh, whether you got us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the other platforms, be sure to subscribe, get uh, notified of new episodes and leave us a strong rating. Derek, thank you again very much. I'm Chris Farrell on watch. Thanks for listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.